Tonight, we've got uh, Mark Ginolette. Uh, Dr. Ginolette is a professor at Beeson Divinity School. Uh, he's, he and his wife and his family are also members at uh, Cathedral Church of the Advent, uh, where he is the canon theologian there. And, uh, and so we are very glad to be welcoming back uh, Mark. Uh, this is his second time. He, he taught two summers ago on uh, the book of the Psalms. And so if you were there for that, you remember uh, what, what a rich time of teaching that was. Uh, well, again, uh, I would like to welcome uh, Mark Ginolette uh, to teach for us tonight. I think I'm going to stand. <laughs> I, uh, I'm glad to be here with you all. Um, this is a rather cool setting for me, to be honest with you. I, I have uh, gone to this new coffee shop in Homewood a few times, Octane. You know, yeah. And, uh, and it's a really cool place as well. And I always feel like they're going to escort me out immediately when I walk in. Um, so I, I'm, I'll have to get my sea legs here. It's, it's a privilege for me to be with you all. We know about your church. We pray for your church. Uh, my children, uh, my oldest two boys, have been at Cornerstone School for the past three years. And as a matter of fact, my oldest son's teacher's here tonight. Um, so we feel somewhat connected both to your church and, and your place in the community, which is really very important. And so I'm glad to be here. I'm going to pray in a second, but I'm also glad to see my friend Kurt. I'm embarrassed who's here, who lives in the south side with us, who has the coolest dog. Well, I'm sorry. You have one too, don't you? A dog. I'm sorry. A very cool dog in the south side named Bub, so I'm glad to see Kurt here tonight. All right, I'm going to pray, and we're going to hop in. So, Father, as we tonight seek to learn something from your servant, Martin Luther, we ask God that even in this setting and around a shared meal together and a shared time together, that you, by your spirit, would do something that we really cannot manufacture. We, we can't make your word come alive. We cannot make the gospel be effective. We come in a spirit of anticipation, a posture of hope, knowing that what you have said to us in Jesus is real and it's true. And I pray, Lord, tonight that in the give and take, and the repartee during the Q&A time, that the whole thing, Lord, would be to your glory and to the edification of your people. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So have you heard about Martin Luther before? I mean, who's read something about Martin Luther? And let's toss out some facts. What, what do you know about Martin Luther? I, have, I brought a picture with him tonight. I, for those of you who have had me in class, you know that I'm not really a kind of visual guy. Like, I don't, I don't, do, I don't do PowerPoint. So the fact that I brought an actual visual presentation tonight is a pretty big step for me pedagogically, but that's another thing. Um, so, so here he is here. I uh, can't say he's got much going on for looks, but most of us don't. Um, anything else you know about Luther that you've read? He would roll in thorns when he had sexual and lustful desires. Okay. <laughs> that should get the pump primed. He's German. Anything else about Luther? All right. 
Yep, I mean, Luther is a, is a lightning rod figure. And I'll just go ahead and lay my cards out on the table for those of you. Um, and as I try to plot Redeemer theologically, my sense is, oh, I better be careful. I don't, I don't really know. Um, but my sense is you're probably more in line with me in the fact that my predilection is toward a figure named John Calvin. Um, Calvin was a leading figure in the Swiss Reformation. We're talking now 1500s. Um, I joke with my students quite often that when I was eight years old, I asked Jesus into my heart. And then when I was 18 years old, I asked John Calvin into my heart. Uh, and then when I was 25 years old, I asked Karl Barth into my heart. But that's another, another lesson. Um, my own theological sensibilities are more in line with John Calvin, but... And this pains me to say that, given what I've just said, but there would be no John Calvin, there would be no Reformation without Martin Luther. He is a signal figure in that particular moment in time, providentially to be a man that God used to become a lightning rod, but a real catalyst for reform in the life of the church. Um, Luther didn't like that term reform. He, he preferred the term betterment. But just to put it in a little context for you all, we are all the products, at least Redeemer Community Church, the Cathedral Church of the Advent, Red Mountain Church, which we're, we were part of for a long time, right down the road here. We are all a part of that Protestant heritage that really had its catalyst in the figure of Martin Luther. He is a very important figure, without doubt. I'll refer to this again as the night goes on. But I had uh, the privilege last year with my wife and my children to live for six months in Germany. Um, and we'll, I'll, I'll illustrate this a little bit more later. But that was a very, a very um, special time for us, in part because we did the whole let's, find, let's walk where Luther walked kind of thing. And, uh, but without a doubt, Luther's presence in Germany is still um, very palpably present. I mean, you go into the, especially cities in the northern part of Germany, Hamburg, Germany. Anybody been to Germany before? All right, so you've been to Hamburg, or, or you go to some of these other northern German cities. I mean, just looming big statues of Martin Luther. He is a German, and a German figure, and a very important figure that really shaped, germ, really, the German identity, and some would even argue the German language. So we're talking about someone who's very important here. I'm not all, I, 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 we can't contextualize all of that. It's a, it's a massive project. Luther did not fall out of the sky. There was a lot of, um, uh, there were a lot of issues and figures and people and thought that led up to Martin Luther. Um, but what I'm interested in tonight, primarily, and there's going to be a long sort of drum roll to get to this, but what I'm interested in tonight primarily is trying to gain some purchase for us on learning to read the Bible with Martin Luther. I mean, what was it that drove Luther's reading of the Bible? And, and let me just put this from another vantage point to contextualize it for you and for me. Um, Redeemer Community Church, I do know this about you all, is a Bible church. I mean, in other words, uh, it's driven, you're driven by a certain kind of care and concern to study, to understand, and to submit yourself to the authority and the claims of the Bible. That's really important. Um, the church that I'm a part of would be within that framework as well. The scriptures are central to Christian identity. 
Now, I want to sort of back up and give you a kind of view on the Bible that I think is really important when it comes to Christian faith and Christian identity. And let me put it to you this way. I'm an Old Testament guy, and so is Luther. It's one of the reasons I kind of like him. I teach Old Testament for a living. Really boring stuff. I mean, like, real boring. Like, Hebrew. You never took Hebrew with me, did you, Phil? Yeah, you're blessed. Um, I mean, mean, just boring stuff. Um, But when it comes to the Bible... The reason why the Bible is so important in the life of the church is this, because the Bible is the creative word by which the church is formed and identified, period. The church did not create the Bible. You'll hear people say that. The church didn't create the Bible. The Bible continues to exert its own authoritative and pressuring voice on the church as an ongoing living voice of God. And we're going to get back to this before the night's over. But the Bible is the living voice of God. I mean, think about this. When you come Sunday in and Sunday out to Redeemer Community Church to hear the preaching of the Word, what an enormous burden and joy that's placed on those who bring that Word to you. But the bringing of that Word is the bringing of the very words of God that are found in Holy Scripture. The Bible is not an inert shard back in the first century world or the ancient Near Eastern world. It's not. The Bible, and I'm using Herman Boving's language here, is an eternally youthful, alive, vibrant word that continues to speak into our world. Luther got that. And one could say that all of these tectonic shifts that occur in the history of Christian doctrine, Christian belief, what it means for us to be Christians. One can chart that along the line of history and see that again and again and again, these theological debates that seem so esoteric and obscure, but these theological debates were debates over the Bible. How do we understand the Bible? We think about it with the Trinity. You talk about some complex stuff. I mean, tonight, just try to think about the Trinity a little bit more. One God, one being, one, one divine essence, and yet three persons that share in that one essence so that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not a spirit in a kind of monad way, but in a tri-personal eternal fellowship that one God shares in its one being in three persons. That doesn't work. I mean, you get that like that? According to our principles of logic, it just doesn't work. It's a matter of faith that these fourth century theologians debated the Trinity. And in that wrestling with faith, what I wanted to push forward to you tonight, it was a wrestling with the Bible. How do we come to terms with what the Bible has to say? Martin Luther and the whole genesis of the Reformation that continues to have its force felt to this day in Birmingham, Alabama had its source and its genesis in a man who wrestled and struggled with the Bible. How do I understand the Bible? Karl Barth, who I think brought another very important reformation in the life of liberal Protestant Christianity, Karl Barth's born-again moment, if I can put it that way, was his understanding that his liberal theological training did not give him the tools he needed to preach. And so he sat under an apple tree with the Bible in one hand and his notebook in the other, and all of a sudden, big things started to happen. It's the Bible. So who is this figure, Martin Luther? Um, Anybody seen the movie? Is it Jeremy Fines? Is that his name? Shakespeare in Love guy. It's a good movie, yeah. What? Sorry. Joseph Fines. Mental note. 
Um, so Luther uh, was born in uh, the late 15th century. Fascinating figure, fascinating time. Um, think about the, 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 the massive impact of the bubonic plague throughout Europe. I mean, so many people died. I mean, Luther's in the middle of all of this. And his father wanted him to be a lawyer. And he's out riding a horse in the middle of the countryside outside of Erfurt, Germany, which is in central Germany. Lightning strikes. He falls off of his horse. I mean, this is an awesome moment. And uh, he cries out to St. Anne, St. Anne, help me. And if you will help me and save my life in this lightning storm, I'll become a monk. And uh, he was saved. And Luther, being a kind of obsessive personality, I mean, I just put it out there to you, and he was an obsessive personality, he followed through on that. Walked into the city of Erfurt, which we had the privilege of being there right at this Augustinian cloister right here at Erfurt, knocks on the door and he enters into the Augustinian monastery and takes his vows and he becomes a monk. Right in that medieval um, Catholic tradition of being a monk, daily prayers, daily vigils, self-denial, rolling around in the thorns, right? I mean, this was a part of Luther's monkish identity. I wanted to read this, and you have these quotes on here. We're going to work through these a little bit. Listen to what Luther said later on in life, reflecting on his time as a monk. I was a good monk. I kept my order so strictly that I could say that if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, another way that I've heard this translated is, if ever I could, a monk could get to heaven through monkery, I should have entered in. All my companions in the monastery who knew me would bear me out in this, for if it had gone on much longer, I would have martyred myself to death. What with vigils and prayers, reading and other works. Like my, my students might feel something like this. My conscience would never give me certainty. I always doubted. I always said, you did not perform that correctly. You were not contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. Now, for some of you, that might sound really bizarre. I mean, we live on the far side of modernity. We live in a time where I'm frankly convinced that not everyone has this kind of sensitive conscience. I mean, I, I, I think people go out abuse their power, involve themselves in illicit activities, and do that day in and day out, and sleep at night like babies. I mean, I, I don't think everyone has the kind of sensitive conscience that, that Luther had. Now, let me frame this for you biblically. Romans 1, when it talks about the wrath of God being poured out, poured out on those who would value the, creature, the creator more than the, the creature more than the creator, Paul says that God's wrath, this is a very frightening verse, frankly, uh, you know, drink something, that Paul says that the wrath of God is displayed when God gives them what they really want. In other words, they really want the creation. They want God's gifts. They want to abuse his gifts more than him. And the wrath of God is demonstrated by God saying, okay, you can have it. In other words, it does, a tormented conscience is not necessarily indicative that someone is experiencing and under the wrath of God. 
In fact, sleeping like a baby on your pillow at night could in fact be indicative of the case that one is under the wrath of God. Now, that's a completely different conversation. But the point being, some of you, though, do know this about a sensitive conscience, about a conscience being burdened. My wife and I come out of, of, out of a fundamentalist background, and I don't mean by that someone just more conservative than you. I mean, like, we were really Kool-Aid and all kind of uh, fundamentalist. And uh, we know about this sensitive conscience, the, 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 the notion, the kind of self flatulation in the sense of, I don't know if I said the right prayer when I asked Jesus into my heart. Maybe I didn't get the words right, or I don't know if my efforts for Jesus are enough, and there's this constant turning in on the self to make sure that I'm okay with God, that God is happy with me, that he's not upset with me. Now, here's something that I think you might find interesting with regard to that. In the classic Christian Augustinian tradition from St. Augustine on, the definition of sin within that tradition has been sin is in curvatus in se, the turning in on the self. I mean, isn't it interesting that within the kind of fundamentalist, overly sensitive conscience world that I came out of, that in fact it was probably very sinful activity constantly being turned back in on myself rather than looking away from myself to the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ. And here is Luther saying, my conscience troubled me. I was looking for certainty. Um, We'll see this here in a second with the next quote, but I heard Graham Tomlin, a Luther scholar from the United Kingdom say, and I, I actually found this very, very helpful. In many ways, the Reformation took place with Luther because Luther was on a mad and passionate search for a God that he could love. He didn't love God. He hated God. He was fearful of God. He was in a constant position where he expected that God at any moment was going to pounce on him because his prayers weren't good enough, his vigils weren't long enough, his endeavors weren't sincere enough. God was ready to pounce on him. That was that conscience that burdened Luther that was driven by a very bad theology. I mean, look at this next quote. Then God appears horrifyingly angry. (laughs) Have you felt that? And with him, the whole creation is angry, just a foment. There can be no flight, no consolation, neither within or without. Everything is accusation. I mean, Luther's understanding of God was not that God looked on him with a smiling face. Think about that famous line from William Cooper's uh, hymn, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to, to perform. Behind a frowning providence, there is a smiling face. A beautiful line. Not for Luther. Behind a frowning providence is a frowning face for Luther. Everything is accusation. Everything is telling Luther, you don't add up. You're not assured of your position before God. A fellow monk said to Luther, my son, this is Luther reflecting on this, God is not angry with you, but you are angry with God. And he was. Luther was very clear as he looked back on his time as a monk to say, I did not love God at that moment. I hated God. 
But there was a figure in Luther's life. Like I pray that there's a figure in your life. There's been figures in my life. His figure was a man named Johannes von Staupitz. Great dog name, by the way, if you're looking for one. If we get an Airedale, Kurt, it might be, just be prepared, it might be von Staupitz. He said, if I didn't praise Staupitz, this is a man that would tell Luther, in effect, stop confessing to me all the time. He was his superior in the monastery. Stop, in other words, the, the famous line, go sin and sin boldly. I mean, it's not the kind of advice I would give to my children. They don't need that advice. I mean, my, my, they don't have a real sensitive conscience, right? But for Luther, it was like, shop was like, don't, don't do that. I mean, stop coming to me. If you, if you need to confess something, go do something really big and then come and see me. Staupitz understood the grace of God, and he was trying to help Luther see through his own self-condemned status. So he looks back and he says, if I didn't praise Staupitz, that very important figure. I should be a damned, ungrateful, papistical ass. For he was my very first father in this teaching, the teaching of the gospel, and he bore me to Christ. Um, if you haven't read any Luther before, by the way, he had a flair for the dramatic when it came to his language. Um, little earthy. Um, someone, someone asked Luther one time if the Pope... Um, was a member of the body of Christ. And he said, yes, you know, like, like zits and acne are part of our body. I mean, that was his, was, he's, he wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't, Luther didn't pretend to give the warm and the fuzzies. So what happens to Luther? And this is where we're going tonight. What happens to Luther is he becomes a doctor of theology. And his role as a doctor of theology was to teach the Bible. Now, for those of you who might know something about theological education today, and this is the orbit in which I reside, we've bifurcated the disciplines so that you have a New Testament scholar and you have an Old Testament scholar, and then you have the church history and the theology people, and then you have the practical people who help you deal with uh, preaching and you know, organizational administrative matters in the life of church. So we've separated the practical, the theological, and the biblical. If Luther or Calvin were to see our theological curriculum today set up that way, their eyes would cross. They wouldn't get that because there wasn't a bifurcation of the discipline. You had to do everything when you were a theologian. But if we're going to put Luther in our mold today, Luther was a Bible professor. He spent most of his time lecturing on the Bible, and it was the lecturing on the Bible that began to unlock things for him, beginning with the book of Psalms. He spent three years on the book of Psalms when he first got out of the gate teaching. And then he started to lecture on Romans. And for some reason in the providence of God, the book of Romans just tends to be a juggernaut. I mean, it, it is the book that tends to move the ship when we're dealing with the history of Christian doctrine. And, and for Luther, he understood that when Paul said, the righteousness of God has been revealed, Romans run, that that was not a word of judgment. It was not a word of retributive justice, and that is God is on his throne and he's ready to, to avenge his own justice. It wasn't that, but it was the righteousness of God that's given to people as a gift, as grace, 
as undeserved, unmerited favor and kindness from the Lord that is not given to us because of anything that we do, any any self-exertion that we bring to God, none of it matters. The entirety of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus said it is finished and he meant it. And the sky blew open for Luther at that moment. The gospel had gripped this man, as I hope it's gripped you. I wanted to read, this is a lengthy section, and I don't like being read to, if you're like me, I I don't like this, Um, but I'm going to read to you. This comes from a meditation of Luther. You should be very nervous that it's only a quarter to eight, by the way. Um, I'm I'm, I'm aware of the time. Um, this, This comes from a later sermon or writing of Luther on Reflections on the cross. Track with me with this. Read along. We say without hesitation, I hope this is comforting news to you tonight. We say without hesitation that he who contemplates God's suffering for a day, for an hour, yes, even a quarter of an hour, he's talking about the cross here, does better than to fast a whole year, pray a psalm every day, Yes, better than to hear 100 masses. This meditation changes man's being and almost like baptism gives him a new birth. Here the passion or the suffering of Christ performs its natural and its noble work, strangling the old Adam. I mean, can you see the, what beautiful imagery uh, Luther gives us here? As you contemplate the cross of Christ, as you look and see what God has done for you and his son, the old Adam that's present in you gets strangled out. It's a great image. It banishes all joy, delight, and confidence which man could derive from any other creature, even as Christ was forsaken by all, even by God. Now Luther's going to become a pastor. This is Luther as a pastor. It's a good word. You cast your sins from yourself and on to Christ when you firmly believe that his wounds and his sufferings are your sins to be born and paid for by him. The more your conscience torments you, the more tenaciously you must cling to them. What's them? Scripture's promises. If, as we said before, and I like this, you cannot believe, you must entreat God for faith. This too rests entirely in the hand of God. However, Luther, the practical theologian, won't leave you alone. He's about to say something here. However, you can spur yourself on to believe in this way. First of all, you must no longer contemplate the suffering of Christ, for this has already done its work and terrified you. That's a great pastoral word. In other words, when you're at the moment looking at the cross and you have now realized because of God's own self-revelation that Jesus is there because of me. This is not the kind of abstract reflection on Jesus, the moral life, or anything like that. He makes you a better person. It's nothing like that. It's coming to the cross. It's looking at the one hanging on that cross between heaven and hell and knowing there's an interrelational transaction going on right now between me and that figure. I'm involved in this right now. And what's holding him there, what's on his shoulders right now, Isaiah chapter 53, are my sins. Not in the sins of the world, yes, but I'm involved in this. Once you contemplate that, that's a terrifying prospect. It really is. And Luther gets that. 
but he doesn't want to leave you there at that terrifying moment. Once it's done that work, pass on that, beyond that. And now see behind the cross his friendly heart and how this heart beats with such love for you that it impels him to bear with pain your conscience and your sins. What is the beating heart of God's love for his people? The beating heart of God is the suffering servant on the cross. There we see the tears of God's love poured out for you and for me. Then your heart, once that happens, then your heart will be filled with love for him and the confidence of your faith is going to be strengthened. Now continue and rise beyond Christ's heart to God's heart, the one who's out to get you. And you will see that Christ would not have shown this love for you if God and his eternal love had not wanted this. For Christ's love for you is due to his obedience to God. Thus you will find the divine and kind paternal heart. And as Christ says, you will be drawn to the Father through him. Then you will understand the words of Christ. Thank you, Tim Tebow. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We know God aright when we grasp him, not in his might or his wisdom. That will terrify you. And it's true, by the way. He is powerful. He is all wise. He is holy. And that is terrifying. But you don't know God aright or fully when you only see him from that vantage point. You know him aright when you see him in his kindness and his love. Then faith and confidence are able to exist, and then man is truly born anew in God. That's something. It's beautiful. Luther was a man who was seized by that message. Luther was a man that was drowning in the deep end of the pool of his own religious effort. His own idol factory that was underneath his own chest. And the gospel of Jesus Christ came to him like a great life vest and got him out of that deep into the pool. And now that he's outside of that pool, looking into it, you see him saying, that is the good news. That that one who's suffering on the cross, bearing the sins of the world, bearing my sins, is my Savior who loves me, who's smiling toward me, who is for us, that grabbed him. Oh, more things to talk about here. Luther was a polemicist. I'm going to skip these next few things. Luther was a polemicist. He was the defender of the gate. Um, He wasn't nice. I mean, in other words, like if you're looking for a a kind of pleasant evening around the table, I mean, don't invite him. Um, if you're looking for advice on good beer, do invite him. He, had, he actually had very strong opinions on that. But he was a polemicist because much like Paul, much like Paul, where you see Paul come unchained in a book like Galatians, if anyone preaches to you another gospel, by the way, you know this is inspired Bible. We believe this to be true. Paul said, if anyone preaches to you another gospel than the one that I have preached to you, even if it's an angel from heaven, let that person be anathema. That's a very sort of kind way of saying, let them be damned, let them be cursed. Oh, and by the way, a few verses later, just in case you didn't get it, Galatians 1, if anyone else preaches to you a different gospel, let them be damned damned. 
I mean, Luther was in that sort of Pauline train. The gospel's at stake. It's not about personal rapport with other people. The gospel is at stake. And Luther became an unchained lion to defend the gospel. And sometimes he was a little bit hard-necked about that. I mean, not when it came to the gospel. When it became to certain matters of doctrine. I wish he was a little softer on things, frankly. But he wasn't. He was a polemicist. He was a warrior. If I can use Godfather language, he was a wartime conciliary. That's right. For those of you who know the Godfather, you'll appreciate that. Look at how Luther describes himself over against Melanchthon, who was his colleague there in Wittenberg. I was born to take the field and to fight with the hordes and the devils. And therefore, my books are very stormy and warlike. I have to dig out the roots and the trunks, cut down the thorns and the hedges, and fill up the pools. I am the crude lumberjack who has to blaze a trail and prepare the way. Oh, but Master Philip Melanchthon, Goes about quietly, building and planting, joyfully sowing and watering as God has richly given him gifts to do. I'm just not that way. All right. So Luther was a man unchained because of the gospel. The, the next thing, I want you to see that Luther was a man who did not give us really a kind of compendium of systematic theology or doctrine like Calvin did in his famous Institutes. Calvin gave us a kind of compendium of doctrine that, frankly, without those institutes, I'm not sure Calvin would be the kind of huge figure that he is even today. He left us something quite unique within that Reformation period. Luther didn't do that. But what Luther did leave us was an exorbitant amount of literature on the Bible. I want you to flip the page and see this. Of the 55 editions of Luther's writings, and that's a lot of writings. I, I forget, it's, we're talking millions of words um, that he wrote. Uh, 30 out of the 55 volumes of his collected works in the American Works editions are exegetical or Bible in nature. Look at this timeline here. Psalms, Romans, Hebrews, Magnificat, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude, 1 Corinthians. And by the way, you notice, I think this is important, how much of this is in the decade of the 1520s? I mean, this is on the far side of Luther tacking up that famous 95 thesis that sort of began the Reformation. And now he's having to hammer out his theology. And, and, this, and the 20s was a momentous time for that. And where, how is he hammering out his theology? You see it right here. By wrestling with the Bible. There's an instinct there theologically that I think is very important. Deuteronomy, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Malachi, Ecclesiastes, 1 John, 1 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Isaiah. Just exhausting thinking about that. Isaiah in one year, but he lectured on the whole thing. Song of Songs, which for Luther and for the whole Reformation tradition was not 30 ways to have a better sex life. I'm sorry if that's what you think about it. It's, um, it's a book about... Um, you can read it that way, that's fine. Uh, I, I did as a teenager, when I got bored in sermons, that's what I, I would always read, Song of Solomon. The, the imagery fascinates me to this day. Um, but for Luther and for Calvin, for the whole tradition, the Song of Songs was about God's relationship with his people. That's what it was about. Uh, Galatians, Psalms, again, the Sermon on the Mount, 1 Corinthians 15, Genesis, 1 Samuel. Look at this quote from Heiko Obermann. For Luther... Careful heed to the scriptures was the only scholarly basis for theology and thus the reliable standard of truth. So, so Luther walked in here today and we asked him, Luther, tell us what, what makes a good theologian? Luther's quick answer would be twofold, I think. Well, it'd be probably more. Who knows what he'd say? 
my projection on him would be, he would say, number one, to be a theologian is to be a student of the word. And all of you are theologians. You have people who are church people, that you come and hear sermons, that you're trying to think about what it means to live life under the reality of the gospel day in and day out. You're all theologians. We all are. That's not just a kind of uh, esoteric elitist uh, discipline. It's for all of us. So Luther would say, if you want to be a theologian, you be a lifelong student and lover of the word of God, of the Bible. And the second thing, and this might come a little bit as a surprise, you don't have it here in the list, but the second thing that Luther would say is, and also to be a theologian is to be someone who knows, and here's the German word of the night, anfechtungen, trial, temptation, suffering. What makes a theologian, Luther? Suffering and temptation make a theologian. Being a student of the word and going through the school of hard knocks in life. That's what makes a theologian. Well, can we press on? I can do all this in five minutes. Don't worry. Um, I won't do that. Uh, this next part here, I'll just give you a little entree to this. How is God known? This, this has real cash value, I think. Because there is a lot of talk in the public marketplace of ideas today about God. I mean, you, you have these kind of conversations about God and does God exist? What does it mean to be a theist or an agnostic? Um, and I think this is healthy. It's a good conversation to have. But if Luther were to enter into this conversation and someone were to ask Martin Luther, Luther, tell me about what it means for God to be God or tell me about God, Luther could not give you an answer to that question without very quickly talking about the Trinity. In other words, even myself, when I hear these kind of conversations about apologetic debates over the existence of God or not, I'm happy that that happened. I think it's very good. I'm all for it. But I get very nervous because being a theist, believing in God, for Luther, really at the end of the day, almost means nothing. That's a, that sounds very harsh to say. I don't mean it that way, but it comes kind of a bit harsh. Because for Luther, there is no God behind God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. Do you want to know what God is like? God is hidden. God cannot be constructed according to our own thoughts. Who are my, any philosophy people out here? This is where Immanuel Kant got it right, to my mind. Where Kant said, there is a distinction between the phenomenal world around us. We engage one another. There's Phil. There's Kurt. Here's my table, right? We engage the world around us phenomenologically. But to press to things as they really are, the noumenal world, the world of God, the world of metaphysics, to do that, we can't do that. There's a fundamental divide there. And with Kant, I would say, you're right. We can't build from a kind of natural construction of the world around us and go, oh, I see this, I see that. And with our own natural instincts and our own rationality, be able to build up, build up like the Tower of Babel and say, try Trinity. It's not going to work that way. Augustine made a strong distinction, St. Augustine, between faith and reason. And Augustine's distinction between faith and reason does not mean that Christianity is not rational or reasonable. It is. But the point is, there is an infinite divide between the creator and the creation. 
And reason says, I'm going to cross that divide by my own attempts at human ingenuity and intelligence. Whereas faith says that divide is only crossed one way. When God steps into the world in a human baby and he speaks, fully God, fully man, in one person, Jesus Christ. Luther was very strong on that. Do you want to know who God is? You take a very hard look at crib and cross. You want to know who, Jesus, you want to know who God is? Look at crib and look at cross. Because that is the revelation that God has in his own self-determination determined to reveal himself as this God because this is who he is. That is crucial to my mind. And by the way, just to kind of put it out there, and I hope this isn't offensive to you, it's crazy. You know this thing that you all believe? It's nuts. I mean, my wife, I outed her at a sermon the other night. Uh, I mean, the other day in, in a at a different church in town. My wife is rather friendly with the cults um, in the South Side. I don't know if you've seen the uh, Jehovah's Witness Park in our area. Uh, two young guys, Mormons. Have they come by your place? Um, my wife is very friendly with them. Um, I, I am too. I'm not, I'm not as chipper as she is uh, with them. Um, but what ends up happening is there's a kind of reversal that takes place, right? So my wife develops this relationship with, with uh, these two very nice young Mormon fellows. One's from um, Bozeman, Montana. The other one's from Utah. They're really nice guys. And they, the South Side's kind of their area. Um, and so my wife will develop this kind of relationship with them. But then she pushes me out the door to talk to them. That's kind of how it happens. Like, take care of this. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think about what Mormons believe. Um, I'm, I'm no Mormon expert, but it's, it's just bizarre, right? I mean, brass plates with angelic languages. Well, who, who has the right to interpret those? What is that language? We don't know, but someone's coming who will. I mean, the kind of, that kind of Mormon idea, to my mind, kind of smacks of Illuminati and conspiracy. I'm, I'm sure this isn't fair. I'm giving you my own impression. Um, it's very American. I mean, what... what what other religion other than one that was born on the soil of America would promise us that we might all have our own planet someday? Um, I mean, it's a very kind of... Um, so I'm, I'm not interested in debunking Mormonism. That's, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be able to do that. But the point is, that's weird stuff. But I just want you to know, just to kind of put an edge on it, what you believe as a Christian and what I believe as a Christian is weird. The Trinity does not make sense according to human standards of logic, period. It's imposed on us by the statements of the Bible that we have to do justice to. It doesn't make sense. That Jesus Christ is not a schizoid, but that he's fully God and fully man in one person. I mean, it's craziness. That God actually pushed through a woman's birth canal to enter into the world to redeem humanity. And then they killed him. And then he rose from the dead. And then he ascended, literally his body ascended to, to the throne room of God where he is right now corporally. Let me, let me put this uh, an edge on this for you as well. Jesus has a body right now. We, that's real, your salvation depends on that. That he has a body right now. He's a, he's a man, glorified body, but he's a man right now interceding to the Father by the Holy Spirit on your account even as we speak right now. And you might not think about that a lot, but you believe that as a Christian. And it is crazy. Now this is why Tertullian, the church father, he didn't quite say it this way, but I'll translate it this way, said 
I believe because it's so absurd. <laughs> um, I, I don't mean any of that to be persuasive to you. I just want you to know that for Luther, it was very important that whenever we start to talk about God, I mean, whenever we, whenever we open our mouth and make any noise at, about anything related to God, the Bible, and the world, it has to begin with God speaking in Jesus, not with human ingenuity and creativity, but with God speaking. All right, my last thing and I'm done. What was Luther's driving interpretive principle of the Bible? There's more stuff here you can read on your own. And maybe in Q&A we can talk about it. My, my, my family and I, um, well, as I mentioned, we're in Germany. And uh, uh, we went to Erfurt where he was in the monastery and taught in the, in the cathedral there. Uh, we went to Eisenach, which is where the Wartburg Castle is, where he was holed up for 10 months and he translated the Bible from uh, Greek into German, the New Testament, in like 10 weeks. I mean, it's miraculous. This guy, was a, he was a genius. Um, that's where he had his fabled encounter with the devil and he threw the inkwell at the devil there. We went there and then we, um, you know, I heard that story. It's a fun story. He's, devil comes in, he throws the inkwell at him. There's, I think it's a fable. Um, and then... Um, and, and then uh, we went to Wittenberg, and that was, it was any, anyone of you been there? Um, it was outstanding. This is where the 95 Theses were tacked up in the Schlosskirche, the famous castle church. I enjoyed that. Um, Luther's buried in there. Uh, Melanchthon's buried in there. Frederick the Wise is buried in there, who um, was uh, uh, Luther's protector. Uh, um, that the, the original edifice is gone. It was destroyed by cannon fire in the 1800s. So it's, you know, it's not quite the same, but yeah, that was fun. Luther's house, you can see his beer mug. I mean, apparently his wife, who was a former nun, was an amazing woman. I mean, she ran the family estate. It was basically a live-in seminary there at their house. She, she ran all of this. And no Joe Blow could brew their own beer in Germany at that time. There was no sort of Alabama home brew stuff going on. Like, no one's doing that in their basement. You had to have a kind of, um, you, had, you had to have a legal status to brew beer. And Katie, his wife, had that status and apparently was one of the best brewmasters in the region. And on display there is Luther's own beer cup. I mean, that's fine. That's great. Um, <laughs> So all that's there, we were having a great time, and then we made our way to the Stadtkirche, the city church, um, which is the original edifice. It's where Luther did most of his ministerial work, preaching week in and week out, and it's the same building. I, mean, I hate to get sort of overly nostalgic, but boy, what was the same building, his pulpit's there, the little... Um, uh, 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 cornerstone, the little uh, tombstone to his daughter, Elizabeth, that died at six months of age. It really tore Luther's heart apart. I mean, he just speaks about it in such moving terms. She, a little Elizabeth, is her, she's in there. And then at the front is this large triptych painting at the altar um, by Lucas Cronach the Elder, who was the artist of the Reformation and Luther's close uh, and personal friend. Naomi will remember this. It was just us in there, I think. Maybe one other person, some lone lady at the back. And the, and the painting's just there. I mean, there's no guards. There's no, it's, just, it's just there. I'm thinking, who does? You couldn't pull this off. I mean, it's just, there it is. I, I couldn't get out the door. Maybe I would have tried. Um, so there's the painting. And it's a fascinating painting at the top. You have a scene of the Last Supper. And Chronic the Elder 
has painted two figures looking away from the circle at the Last Supper out into the audience. And guess who they are? Lucas himself and Martin Luther. This is fascinating. So here they are, and this is another lecture, but Luther's Eucharistic theology, his understanding of the Lord's Supper fits theologically with that picture. But that's, a, that's another, another thing. But underneath, and I don't think you all can see this. You can come look at it later. But underneath that triptych was this painting here. This is the one that got me. It was a picture of Luther standing in the pulpit, Bible open, congregants out in front of him, with his finger pointing to Christ on the cross. And I looked at that and I thought, all the hard work that I've done over the past several years to try to construct an interpretive approach, a Christian interpretive approach to reading the Bible, there it is, in just a simple, beautiful, artistic form. What was Luther's driving interpretive principle? Whatever pressures to Jesus. Why? Because Luther knew that his congregants needed to hear the gospel again and again and again. I had a lady come up to me Sunday morning after a lesson that I did at a different church, and she said, I've struggled with the assurance of my salvation for so long. And I told her, I said, do you know what the wonderful thing that I've learned from Luther is? That the gospel is not just my kind of entree onto the train of Christianity, but the gospel is the whole train. It's everything. So do you know what the good news is for the lost, those who don't know Jesus? The good news is the gospel. And you know what the good news is for those of us who are believers, who do identify ourselves in the church, who are baptized believers? I mean, we're in this thing. Do you know what the good news for you is that you need to hear again and again and again and that the Bible pressures you to? The good news is the gospel. And Luther got that. We never get past it. We need it again and again and again. Well, I'm going to close in prayer. I think it's a 10-minute break and do some drinks and then we'll bat it around a little bit. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for these dear friends. And I pray, Lord, that there will be some clarity, some hope, some encouragement that comes from the lecture tonight. And Lord, I know that if that happens tonight, it will be because of your good grace and your kindness, not because of anything that we've manufactured. And we give you the thanks even now. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, so the, the format for the Q&A is pretty simple. Um, first Q, then A. But the questions, uh, you know, that we, we want to feel these questions and, and, and kind of narrow it into um, just some, some thoughts maybe that you've had as you, as you heard Mark uh, teaching. And, uh, and really any just, just kind of life questions that you've got, anything that you're feeling in your heart, you can just kind of ask whatever. Mark uh, is extremely pastoral. He was uh, my mentor at Beeson and uh, held my hand through many different things. So if you just have something, we can turn this into Oprah real fast. Uh, but yeah, anything, anything that you've got, uh, obviously this is not an attempt to, to stump anyone or anything, but, um, but really, as with all of our theological coffee houses, our, the main goal is ultimately worship, um, that, that our attention uh, would be turned into worshiping our triune Lord. And so uh, any questions that you have, just uh, shout them out as loud as you can so everyone can hear. Uh, Mark will probably try and uh, condense it into a repeatable uh, over-the-microphone uh, question, and then we'll go from there. So have at it.
Yes, sir. Yeah, and, and I really should, I've, I've kind of sold you a bill of goods tonight because I'm, I'm not a church history guy. I mean, I, so I'm, um, but I'll give you a pretty facile answer if you don't mind. Oh, the question. I'll have to repeat this. So why was Martin Luther important and what was he reacting against? I mean, the 95 Thesis, one, one couldn't say that when Martin Luther tacked those up, what are we looking at, October 31st, 1518? 17, Um, that Luther had a really formed doctrine of justification by faith alone. I mean, that's what Luther's most remembered for is his insistence on the gospel is understood as justification by faith alone, apart from works. I don't think that that was really fully worked out in Luther yet. So in some sense, it's not quite right to pin the Reformation at that moment, but what Luther was reacting against was a kind of abuse of religious power. I mean, that's another way of putting it. I mean, there were, uh, John Tetzel was the famous one who would go through, through the um, area of Germany and they were building, if you've ever been to Rome and been into St. Peter's Basilica, it's quite stunning, but they built that on the back of indulgences, which is basically um, a kind of monetary effort that you could give money to the Roman Catholic Church and then your family could get some time in purgatory cut off or you might cut some purgatory time off for yourself. It was a kind of transaction, um, a monetary transaction that resulted in a kind of salvific end. And, and Luther, not Luther alone, but the, the whole sort of Augustinian, the Augustinian tradition, I think as well, not the Dominicans, but the Franciscans, but there, there, there was a lot of foment about this. And Luther... Um, tacked up those theses primarily to respond um, to that particular ecclesial problem. And then once that happened, um, it was like the horse was now let out of the gate. Um, He became a kind of a public figure. He had to go uh, and defend himself at at, at Worms, the city of Worms. They call it the Diet of Worms, which always looks weird to see, but it's the city where he had to go and defend himself and his famous, unless I can be convinced by you know, the, by the scriptures and, and, and my conscience will not move, here I stand. I mean, that, that was the real deal. And, and at that point, then Luther becomes a public figure, a public intellectual, and really a public enemy of the, of the Church of Rome. Um, I do think, and again, I'm stepping out of my own comfort zone here, but my sense is Luther was really interested. He didn't like the term Reformation. He liked the term betterment. I don't think he had any notion of starting a Protestant church. Um, but in a kind of divine providential way, that's what happened because of the decision that was made by Rome to excommunicate him and put what's called a papal bull out on him. He was a wanted man, um, and he, he, his life was in danger. That's why Frederick the Wise hid him in that castle in Wartburg for you know 10 months or however long that was because he was a wanted man. It's a quite a stunning achievement of God's providence, frankly, that, that Luther lived. Um, and, you know, this became a long debate, you know, even afterward, uh, 
what Calvin called the Nicolaitans, um, no, no, the Nicomedeans is what he called them, or those people that remained in France who stayed, who had evangelical, reformational, theological instincts, but they stayed in the Church of Rome. You know, there, was this, there were a lot of debates, very textured debates about what it looks like um, to be faithful to the gospel in light of given ecclesial structures. And I think those kind of debates are still around today. That's probably more than what you're asking about, but that, that was, yeah. Yes, sir. You're a student, right? Are you a student? No, you look for, oh, church. Sorry. I hope my colleagues and friends at Beeson don't hear this. <clears throat> my best, my closest, one of my closest colleagues at where I teach is a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor. Um, and, and I think it's one of those kind of familial debates that you see where we share so much in common, but there's enough distinction as well to make the conversation interesting, read, friction, right? Um, one of the main distinctions, I mean, there's, there's several, but there's one of the main distinctions is there's a, the fundamental Lutheran interpretive approach to the Bible is what they call a law gospel hermeneutic, a law gospel. In, in other words, the law and the gospel are two distinct words of God that one finds in the Bible, and distinguishing them and clarifying them is the whole shooting match for understanding the Bible. And the law accuses always. Whereas the gospel is the good news that you are redeemed. Um, Calvin and the Reformed tradition did not work with the strict law gospel hermeneutic. And in some, many ways they understood the gospel as having ingredient to it, the law, and the law having the Old Testament having the gospel as a part of it as well. So it's a much more textured understanding where just, justification and sanctification are not pitted over against one another but are viewed as the one total reality of what it means to be a believer of salvation. How one understands the relationship of those, these are long and heated debates to this day. Another one would be the understanding of how the two kingdoms theology is worked out. I mean, Luther had a clear understanding that you have the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ and never shall the twain meet. Whereas within certain strands of the Reformation tradition, there's been more of an insistence on public political theology. Um, uh, think about Abraham Kuyper, there's not one square inch of this world that Jesus doesn't say, this is mine. Um, and so there, there, there are some key points of doctrinal distinction. Um, those within the Reformation tradition understand the atonement to be particular in its extent, that is, Jesus died for his own. And that's a real interpretive difference between the Reformation tradition and the Lutheran tradition. So there's a lot, I mean, and, um, and it's enough to keep it fun. Um, but I think it's also enough to remind us that we really share a lot in common. And then to be fair to my colleagues who never tire of reminding me of this, and they're right, there would be no Calvin without Luther. I mean, Luther, Calvin said so himself. I mean, Calvin was giddy when Luther said something positive about his writings. I mean, it just 
giddy about it. His letters to Sadaleto, I think is what he read. Um, and then later on, it kind of, the relationship soured a little bit. I mean, you think about, this, you wonder, these kind of questions about looking back in history and time, what, what might have been. These are bad questions probably, but it is an interesting intellectual uh, enterprise to think, what would have happened if Central Europe let me think about this. Luther and Melanchthon up in Wittenberg, right? Because you kind of put Europe in front of you. Luther and Melanchthon in Wittenberg, Martin, Lu- Martin Bucer in Strasbourg, southeastern Germany. You have Calvin, who's in, in um, uh, Geneva. You have Occlumpadius, who's in, at Basel. You have uh, Bullinger, who's Zwingli's successor, in, in um, Zurich. And there was some overlap between them, but there was some real, the, the meeting of politics and religion, carving out our own turf, driving a hard line on how we understand the Lord's Supper. I mean, that kept Europe divided. And then you move a hundred years later and you're into the Thirty Years' War, which was one of the bloodiest wars in Europe's history that was really a kind of nasty meeting of politics, political machinery, and religious zealotry. I mean, you know, you just, you know, I believe in doc. I'm, I, I have a high view of doctrine, you know, but there, but there, these things have to be wrestled with. I think. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what quote are you looking at, Roger? Is that? Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Well, oh, oh yes, I'm sorry. The question is, I think, um, expound a little bit more on this Luther's interpretive center, what drives to Christ. So if you look at the quote there, <coughs> whoever wants to read the Bible, must make sure he is not wrong. For the scriptures can easily be stretched and guided, but no one should guide them according to his emotions. He should lead them to the well that is to the cross of Christ, then he will certainly be right and cannot fail. I mean, this is a really live question. How do I know that, that I'm reading the Bible rightly? How do I know that? Um, and this is a question that has been at the heart of the Christian interpretive tradition all the way back to St. Augustine in the fourth century and even before. Um, I think what Luther is warning us against is turning the Bible into a talisman, turning the Bible into, oh, what's another way of putting this? Uh, huh? A wax nose, a genie on the mantle, uh, a genie in the bottle on the mantle. You know, something that we kind of read from our own interpretive center, just me, it's kind of me, Jesus, and the Bible. And the reason why I read the Bible is because I need, I need God to tell me something about my, I would call that kind of an overly Marxist view of relativism, relevant, being relevant. I, I don't know. And I think what Luther is saying is all those things are important, but those are derivative. That's a, how this applies to me which we, t- we think about modern Bible, Christian Bible readers, I mean evangelical, robust, we tend to lead with uh, what does this mean for me today? How's this going to help me in public? It's the kind of question I used to ask my seventh grade algebra teacher. Like how's this really going to help me when I'm having to be, you know, live real life? 
And I think Luther's point is, that's not a bad question, but it's not the first question. The first question is, how does this lead you to Jesus Christ, who is the subject matter of the whole of the Bible? That's a very important point. Jesus Christ is the subject matter of the Old Testament and the New Testament. God in the Old Testament is triune. Just me saying that would evacuate a room at a certain kind of academic Bible conference. Because to say that the Old Testament God is triune is to anachronistically impose something on the Old Testament that certainly can't be true. I mean, Moses did not know that God was Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I would say, you might be right, Moses might not have known that, but it didn't mean that that was not what was true, despite his knowledge of that. And that is the revelation of God in Jesus that opens up the Bible for us. The early church called this an appeal to the, to the rule of faith. And that is, there's a rule that guides us in our reading of the Bible in its totality that keeps us from falling off the rails. Um, It functions as a shield to protect us from going the wrong way. Because I don't know if you realize this or not, but every heretic in the church has a Bible verse on their side. I mean, I tell this in my sort of naughty way to my students in Beeson, the first road to heresy is exegesis, the reading of the Bible. I mean, because every heretic had their own Bible verse on their side, but the question was not how do I read that particular Bible verse, but how do I read that particular Bible verse in light of the scope of the whole of the Bible? And that kind of interpretive tradition that Luther's a part of here is a moving in and a moving out and a moving in and a moving out. To go into the particularity of the text, to wrestle with the text in those words, but then to back out and see how that fits within the whole. And that's that kind of Trinitarian reading that really is a lifelong habit to be learned. It really is. It's a lifelong habit. And I hope it's okay. I tell my students at Beeson this. I hope this is an encouragement to you. The most important thing you bring as a student of the Bible to the, you're like, what's the most important character trait as a student of the Bible? My answer would be, number one, humility, prayer, and responsibility, even over accuracy. Because I think our accuracy on reading particular texts might change over time. I've changed my mind on the way in which I understand particular texts. And some of them were a long time in me letting them go. I just was not going to let my understanding of Romans 7 go. I wasn't going to do that. And now I just have a different view of Romans 7. Um, Was I inaccurate before? Maybe. Was I irresponsible before? I don't think I was irresponsible. So you bring what you have, you do the best you can, and you trust God to do his work. I think that should be kind of liberating. In other words, go have fun. I mean, some people would say, and I know know a friend of mine, I'm thinking right now, in ministry. I mean, his worst nightmare is a church small group setting where people are reading the Bible together and saying, well, what does that mean to you? I mean, it's like his worst, like he just goes catatonic thinking about it. Um... I think there are problems with that too because of the kind of experiential lead we can bring to that. But on the other side of the coin, I don't think it's all that problematic for people to sit around to wrestle with the Bible, recognizing that they might need to be corrected in their reading. There might be better readings on offer to kind of you know, shift the conversation, but that's not a bad question. I've really changed my mind on that. It's not bad. It's not that threatening. And part of the reason why I don't feel that Benjamin still thinks it's threatening, but part of the reason why I don't feel that it's as threatening is Um, Because I still believe in the teaching office in the church. I think you really need your pastors. Um, I think that those who will lead you in the word are really needed, and they're ordained to that task. I I think that's really important still. That was probably more than what you're asking, but yeah.
Yes, sir. You and then. Um, in curvatus in se, turning it like curving in on the self. So the look out was to the cross, but was there also a penal aspect to look there? Like looking to the cross, but also like looking down the self? Like, was the body Yeah, and I, I think I talk about this somewhere in here, but Luther has a very practical understanding of the gospel and the way in which the gospel would work out in the life of the church and community. Um, I have to kind of, you know, I have to dig a little bit more to give you a nugget on that. Um, but let, I'll give you my own sense on this. That is very important. And we do live in a highly privatized, individualized world where my religion is kind of my own, that's my own kind of transaction between me and God. And we are driven to community. And this is, this is where Augustine, and, and Luther would agree with this, I imagine, where Augustine's notion of the body of Christ, the church being totus Christus, the total Christ. I mean, think about it. Your church is a collected organization together as an organism as well that is related to the very head who is Jesus. I mean, that's an astounding thing that all of you come together collectively and you are the living body of Christ in the world um, I, I don't really have my head wrapped around that, to be honest with you, but it helps me make sense of some of these very uncomfortable things that Paul says, like, I make up Colossians 1.24 for that which is lacking in Christ's suffering. Like, that's heresy, Paul. You can't say that. But I think what Paul is getting at is this totus Christus notion of the church that is Christ and his body cannot be separated the one from the other. Do you remember when Jesus said before he left in John 16, I think, and when I leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and you will do greater works than these? Excuse me? I mean, that's what I think when I hear that. Greater works than what? Than what Jesus was doing. That's what he said. I, was like, I don't even know how to get my head around that. But the point is there is an organic relationship between Jesus and his body um, that must be understood collectively and not individualistically. You know, don't be, we shouldn't be overly impressed with toes or hands. We need the whole body. And the danger, I think, in the life of the church is we tend to project. Like if you have a gift that happens to be a toe gift or a hand gift or a mouth gift, we tend to project on others who have different gifts like, why aren't you a toe? Right. Yeah, well... Church, but like, I guess, 
Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, so, why, I mean, why is, why is Catholicism still an active force and how did it get to its medieval form? Um, St. Peter's Basilica is a stunning place. I mean, I, my wife and I were there several years ago and, you know, you walk through and you see those big keys. I mean, there, there's, I mean, there's no denying the Petrine office as it's understood within the papal role. I mean, the, the Pope is the successor of Peter in Perpetua. I mean, I, 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 um, I mean, I, I, we have to be careful though because Catholicism is not a monolith. I've had to learn this. Um, it's, it's uh, I mean, even, even conservative Roman Catholics like Rusty Reno, who are my nerdy first things readers out there? Any of you read first things? Um, I mean, Rusty Reno's the editor of that. He's a, kind of a convert from the Episcopal Church into the Roman Catholic Church. He's one of these older kind of liberal but now conservative. He's a brilliant man. And if you asked him, well, what about the Catholic catechism? What about Catholic doctrine? His answer, whatever your bishop allows you to believe is fine. I mean, there's a kind of notion of the office of the bishop functioning for someone like Reno, and that is, I don't have to affirm everything that Catholic doctrine affirms as long as my bishop allows me the space to be that. In other words, there is no such monolithic thing like that. It's a complex beast, and I, I really don't have my head around it. Um, and this is why the kind of Roman Catholicism that you meet in Latin America that's kind of wet to animisms and some weird voodoo stuff, that's not European Roman Catholicism. It's certainly not the Roman Catholicism of Boston. Um, you know, so I, it's, in other words, there's no, it's a, it's a big old massive beast. Um, so what social historical forces led to its forming? I mean, that's a very complex engagement within medieval, the medieval philosophical and theological tradition. And this is, I think, a very important matter. And I'll, I'll get to this, and you can see that I'm circling the airport, and I have no ability to land the plane. Um, <laughs> but I will say this. One thing that has been overplayed on the distinction between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism is a, is a view on tradition. Um, sola Scriptura, the Scriptures alone, was a battle cry of the Reformation over against Roman Catholicism, and that is Scripture has the ability to trump and correct tradition. I, my blood as a Protestant runs hot on that particular point. I'm, I'm fully Protestant on that. I think that's true. The scripture is the speaking voice of God. Tradition is the hearing ear of the church. And that hearing ear often hears it well. And we would do well to listen to the Catholic tradition, lowercase c, Catholic tradition. But it can also hear it poorly. And it needs the continued work of the Holy Spirit to help us hear scripture again to correct tradition. Roman Catholicism puts scripture and tradition on an equal plane, the Council of Trent. It's an equal plane. Whereas within the Protestant tradition, scripture is always, this is the famous Latin term, norma normans non normata. It's the norming norm. It's the authority by which every other authority is judged. That is a key distinction. But sola scriptura never meant nuda scriptura. That is, the scripture stripped of anything else. You read Luther, you read Calvin. At the heart of the debate was not just a debate over, a debate over the Bible, although that was really part of it. One of the major parts of the debate does, who has St. Augustine the best? 
Who, has the, who understands the church fathers the best on this? The appeal to the tradition is very important in the Reformation, and I would say it's important for us as well, but Scripture has the ability to trumpet. There's a critical engagement at play there that maybe not, is not fully engaged within the Roman Catholic tradition. It's a complicated thing. I mean, I'm, that, that was my way of answering that question. It's a very... It's a very complicated thing that I don't want to reduce to kind of simple, simple aphorisms. You know the old adage, um, if you give a simple answer to a complex problem, it's typically wrong, wrong, wrong. Um, and that one's a big one. Email Timothy George. <laughs> he's my dean at Beeson. He's, he's into this Catholic stuff. I'm not. I'm a very local guy. I just going to stay in Birmingham's area. He's like hanging out with the Pope in the Vatican. I mean, I, I just, he, he's in a different orbit than I am. So email him. See, see what he's <laughs> <laughs> okay, we need to talk about that. I'm curious. Yes, sir. Yeah, I guess it's sort of a conflict with that question. What about Luther and any other authority really on the unity of the church? Because Luther was You know, hindsight's 2020 on a lot of these things, and and the Reformation certainly had um, enormous positive effects, and there there were there were spinoffs as well that were unfortunate. I mean, and that's not just a later kind of modern development. That's right in the middle of the fray. The Anabaptists, kind of the the radical reformers. Um, and how all that sort of played out. I mean, things begin to fragment quickly. Um, would they like that? I imagine that they wouldn't, although, you know, for Luther, doctrinal precision on the Eucharist was really important, and it was more important than church unity. And I, would, I do think that there's a kind... I mean, we have to continue to think about this and wrestle with it. I do as well. I mean, I'm in the Episcopal Church right now. Holy cow. I mean, that, that ship is sinking so fast. Um, so I'm in the middle of a church that prizes unity right now over any kind of theological integrity. Um, and that is all, there's always a call to wisdom in that to wrestle with how one negotiates that very rocky terrain um, because there is no true unity without the gospel. I mean, I don't know what, we're, what are we unified on. Um, and at the same time, the gospel does have a unifying kind of thing. And the way in which some reformers got away from that in time, when they got more sophisticated in their thought, was to make a distinction between the church as an organism and the church as an organization, and to make a, a distinction between the church militant and the, and the church triumphant. And the church triumphant, we're the militant church, but the church triumphant is a unified church, and it's now a full eschatological reality in the future. We just have to wait and anticipate that. Um, I'm not sure we get that quick and easy of a get-out-of-jail-free card. I think we have to wrestle with these things. Um, I'm not interested in least common denominator ecumenism. I'm, I'm not interested in that. But I am interested in a genuine kind of ecumenism 
where each tradition brings what it has, what it offers to the larger body of Christ. We cannot turn back the clock. The fragmentation has happened. I, as an Episcopalian now, and even saying that sounds so strange, but as I'm in that church now, I really, I believe that I have something to learn from Pentecostals. I think the Pentecostal church brings something that is weird in the world that I'm in now. But I have something to learn from that. Uh, Presbyterians bring something to the table. I mean, in other words, there's something that we have to learn from each other without reducing our theological commitments to a kind of least common denominator. And this is where Heiko Obermann made a distinction between tradition one and tradition two. This has been helpful for me. Tradition one is the Catholic faith, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonic Creed, those early church formulations that really give us the scope of what it means to be an Orthodox Christian, that all Christians of all stripes affirm. That's tradition one. It's the great traditions. It's the Catholic tradition. There's a lot of resources there, and it's very important. We have that to appeal to. Now, but then there's tradition two as well, which gives us our particular ecclesial identities. Think about the Presbyterian world. The Westminster Confession of Faith, that's tradition two. And it plays an important role. I don't think it's as important as tradition one, but it still plays an important role in helping carve and create how people have read the Bible and how that brings something to bear on the larger life of the church. How that works out on the level of policy, I don't know how, I mean, maybe some of you are probably politically hardwired. I mean, I have instincts about economics and health care and all this stuff, but when you start talking about policy, like that's when my eyes begin to cross. It's like, I don't, how do you affect that given this massive ship that is the United States? I have no idea. Um, and, and this, this is, we're in a real, I mean, this is, we are where we are. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot of difficult things that have to be wrestled with that. And it is a kind of polemic that Roman Catholicism and the Eastern Orthodox Church have. Even Eastern Orthodoxy, over, have you ever been in the Eastern Orthodox Church? I mean, you see the big tree, right? All the Protestant fragmentation. And then you have the Catholic fragmentation off. And there's the, there's the, uh, you know, the Eastern Church all the way back to the apostles. Like, well, you know, that's got, that's got a certain kind of cash value to it. Um, but these are, you know, these are, these are difficult matters, I think, that uh, bear continued reflection. Oh, yes, yes, and it's in your thing here. If I can recommend one biography to you that I've engaged, although my colleague at Beeson, Peter Mowish, had his students read another biography. Do you remember the title of that? Yes. Um, the, book by, the book that I reference in here by Heiko Obermann, Luther, Man Between God and the Devil, Yale University Press, is very good. Um, and uh, you can ask our friend here um, to tell you the title of the other one. But those would, I think those would be good books. Yes.
Huh. So how do we, if I'm hearing your question well, how do we even frame our own questions and then what resources do we go to to try to answer them? Is that what you're asking? Um, <clears throat> that, I like the way you frame that because um, how, do, how do we even know what our own questions are? That's, just, that's, a, that's a great way of, of, uh, of raising the issue because um, have you ever heard someone say, I don't even know what I don't know? Um, who said that? Oh, is that who said that? I'm sure there's an antecedent voice behind Rumsfeld on that. That's just my hunch. <laughs> um, I mean, I just got an email from my doctoral supervisor who's in Germany right now where we were last year. And um, he was raising some questions about the theological discussions going on there at the University of Göttingen. And he said, I, I'm very surprised to hear him say this, but he said in, in the email, my approach for the next three months is to listen more than I speak. And that's the advice that one gets from someone who's closer to 60 than when they were 30. And I've thought about, I haven't framed my email back to him, but it's kind of an interesting thing because in some sense, we probably need to hear you at 60 more than we need to hear you when you were 30. Yeah, so you've got more to say now. Um, we don't really know our own questions or our own problems. Um, we lack in self-awareness and self-perception. Um, not everyone has this gift, and not everyone needs to have this gift. I do think that's one of the gifts of marriage. You know, wives and husbands have the ability, and friends and community, let's bring, just not marriage, I don't want to sort of reduce it to that. Friends, community, have the ability to speak words of candor into our lives that we really on our own wouldn't see. Let me give you an example. My son played Little League Baseball this year. Um, I took it way too seriously. Um, and uh, after, like, the second game or something, the other, I was helping coach, you know, my wife asked me in the car or in some venue, you know, in effect, she said, are you self-aware? You know, like, do you know what you sound like at the game? I'm like, no, what are you talking about? She's like, well, you know, pay attention next week. You know, wouldn't do that. Um, we need the community to help us think through our own questions, our own problems, our own issues. And we also need the community of faith to help us adjudicate them. I think small, do you do small groups? That, I mean, small groups are very important in this. Um, my, my mentoring group experience at Beeson Divinity School, where I meet together with students every week, we don't do anything fancy. I've got one of my, form, I mean, we do nothing fancy in there. We talk and laugh and pray. That's what we do. But there's something in that transaction where we open our lives to one another, we try to listen to the word, we try to pray for one another, where the fundamental questions of life become clearer and our concern for people other than ourselves becomes more poignant. That's really important, I think. Um, so how would Luther adjudicate that? I mean, the answer is quite simple. I think Luther would say a couple of things. Go to church, be involved in sacramental life, listen to preaching, and I'll toss in if he wouldn't have, be in community. Um, now, this might be a surprise to you. It has been somewhat to me. But Luther, whenever someone, Luther's primary pastoral advice when people were struggling with their faith was 
this, might, this has always been a stunner to me, he would tell them, remember that you're baptized. I mean, I don't know if you ever think about baptism in that way, but remember that you're baptized, that you've been claimed, that you've been buried with Christ and risen with him in those waters, that he's laid a claim on you. Remember that. Um, remember the gospel, that God moved toward you. Being involved in the life of the Eucharist, of communion and preaching, it's very important. Um, now, I don't know where Redeemer is on your Eucharistic theology, but you know, there are a lot of people who practice a doctrine of the real absence of Jesus. Um, you know, I, I actually think there's something, something's going on there to be taken seriously. Luther and Calvin were of one of mind on that, though they differed on how they understood it. Um, but they knew that they were being fed Jesus. We need communion. We need to remember our baptism. We need to hear the preaching of the word. And we need to be in community. I think that's how Luther would say what the Westminster Confession of Faith calls the ordinary means of grace. See, we, kinda, we want the extraordinary. I want Jesus to look at me. I want to be shaving in the morning and Jesus to show up in the mirror. Like, wow, tell me everything now. Um, and, and what God has given us are ordinary means of grace. Preaching, prayer, community, sacraments. I think that would be his answer. All right. Thank you very much, Mark, for sharing with us. <laughs>